welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Raisers Toolshed. I'm your host, Richie Billing, and today we've got another packed episode. We're taking a detailed look at medieval battles with our residence historian, Aidan Mattis, and we'll be chatting all things folklore with Janina Arndt and Lucy Atkinson from the Faith Fellows podcast. I've also got a bunch of calls for submissions for you, and we've also got some uh, interesting community shout-outs, plus a review of a very cool new book cover tool I think you're going to love. Before we dive in, just a quick reminder to please give us a subscribe or a follow. If you enjoy listening, please also consider leaving us a quick review and sharing it with anyone you think may be interested. It really does mean an awful lot and helps us out massively. If you'd like to join our community as well as get access to some books on writing fantasy and some uh, fantasy writing classes, head over to our Patreon page. The link for that is in the description. And now I think it's time to don our helmets, pick up our swords and shields and dive back in time for a look at medieval warfare with Aiden Mattis. Hello and welcome to another segment of our medieval history exploration really and just uh, the, the point of these little segments is just to give you ideas inspiration and dispel some of the myths uh, particularly when it comes to certain aspects of medieval life so in previous episodes we've looked at diseases we've looked at archery which is sort of what we're going to talk about today and um, we've also looked at day-to-day life during the medieval era, uh, era. and uh, today we're going to talk about battles and warfare which is one of my favourite subjects. And i thrilled to be joined by our resident historian, Mr. Aidan Mattis from the Law Lodge podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's great to have you back to share your wisdom. And I, I understand this is a favourite topic of yours as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> one of my absolute favourites. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't really know. I've been reading a lot of historical fiction lately, and yeah. particularly um, to do with... The Punic Wars and also the Greek Persian Wars. I love that. Yeah. Oh, the Greco Persian Wars. So we can talk a lot about this. But what are we going to talk? We're going to focus on more the medieval period. Yeah. Since that focuses, well, that features in fantasy more than most. So, yes. Warfare, I thought it'd be a good idea because I think this is where fantasy writers go wrong to basically try and get as deep into the uh, sort of mindset of somebody in that era going to war. So I'm thinking we've just been marching for a few days, got all our stuff on our shoulders, armour, all that. We've spoken about how heavy armour is and stuff like that. So pick it up from here. Tell us what we're going to be going yeah. through. Yeah, so uh, if you're if you're on the eve of battle, uh, generally by, by the medieval period, you were at the point where battles were a somewhat agreed upon uh, event. Yeah. Uh, late, as you got later and later into the Middle Ages, that became more and more of a thing. You would actually go and meet and send emissaries and say, you know, all right, we're going to fight here at this time. Um, earlier on in the Middle Ages, you were looking at uh, a lot more of trying to outmaneuver the enemy. And oftentimes you would have two armies circle each other for days, even weeks, trying to find the best position and forcing the other into attacking, uh, you know, because you wanted to be on the defense um, unless you had basically overwhelming force. But if you are, uh, you know, to put yourself in the mindset of like, you know, your average, uh, probably your average knight because they were doing the majority of the fighting, the majority of the the intense fighting, but you would also have, you know, pikemen and bowmen who would be involved. But uh, 
your your average I, let's say man at arms let's say somebody who's who's a trained soldier but they're not they're not of the the noble class you're going to be probably dressed for when you get dressed for battle you're going to get up in the morning um if you're not on horseback then you're going to have a, a much lighter meal but if you're on horseback you're probably going to be eating about a pound of beef for breakfast uh wow. early in the middle ages you you'd have a lot of people also uh drink before battle not enough to get like you know drunk but enough to be bold enough to get that you know liquid courage yeah yeah exactly get you get you moving and you pumped uh and a little bit more dull to pain but you would have so you'd have people who would often you know take a take a few swigs of mead before battle and you know that would get them a little bit more ready to go so to speak but if you're getting into later period, you know, you're say you're a man at arms, you're getting ready to go into battle, you're probably wearing chainmail over um, a gambeson or over leather, depending on what region you're from. And chainmail, of course, each each link in a chainmail shirt is usually uh, connected to five other links, and that's what makes it so strong is that all of the metal is conjoined to so much other metal. Uh, the the primary weakness of chainmail is um, stabbing or blunt force. So uh, if you are in the later Middle Ages, you're probably going to be armed with a sword or a spear. Um, if you're if you're of the man at arms type, the the sword became the more dominant weapon later. But earlier on, uh, the, the spear was always the most common weapon on a medieval yeah. battlefield. So if you were going to battle, you were most likely armed with a spear. A side a sidearm, which would be either a sword and, or an axe, maybe a dagger, um, and you would be wearing usually moderate, whatever the moderate armor of the day was. So in the late Middle Ages, that would be uh, chainmail, maybe maybe a breastplate, uh, maybe some pauldrons. But um, the the high Middle Ages, you're looking at uh, chainmail or a very thick uh, leather gambeson armor piece. Yeah. And then um, early Middle Ages, you're looking at like leather jerkins and and, gam- and not gambesons. Gambesons weren't really in fashion yet, but uh, and and maybe like a a simple not chain mail, not like the, technically what chain mail is is that five link type of shirt. Yeah. But uh, you know they they would have a a type of mail that was uh, usually less interlinked. Um, you know, it might be like two or three links rather than five. Uh, and that's what was used by, uh, for example, the Romans had had a sort of chainmail that was just less effective. Um, so you'd be wearing that if you were earlier on. And uh, for a helmet, almost everybody who fought in the Middle Ages wore a helmet. If you were a peasant, you probably didn't, but you also weren't really doing much fighting, much like close up, close quarters, sword or shield. Uh, if you were a peasant, you were probably using a spear and you were probably at the back of the line. So if you're if you're one of the professional soldiers, yeah, if you're one of the professional professional soldier, ah, soldiers, you've got a helmet. Early Middle Ages might be a leather helm. Later, you're going to get those kind of uh, taller taller helmets with the nose guards and everything. Uh, Viking helmets, obviously, there's this misconception they had horns, probably didn't. And you're looking at uh, probably twenty to thirty pounds all told of armor total. You know, not nearly. People seem to think that you know a medieval suit of armor weighed fifty or sixty pounds. Didn't. Uh, what soldiers carry into battle today is far heavier than what you were carrying into battle as a medieval soldier. Uh, even even as a knight, you were wearing, you know, 30, 40 pounds of gear max. 
because back then you had to actually be able to move. And so you're getting ready for battle. You've got probably a shield. Uh, in the early Middle Ages, you would have been looking at a large round shield that would have had a um, a boss in the center. And this is where your hand would go. Uh, early medieval shields were usually you'd have like a leather strap that went across right here. Yeah. And then your hand would grip a handle in the center. Um, and that boss could be used both as obviously defensive, but also as an offensive punching weapon. And so the primary way that you were going to line up as you were getting ready to go into battle was early Middle Ages, you're looking at a shield wall, and those would that would involve overlapping those shields against one another, much like a Greek phalanx. And then so uh, as you get into the, the high Middle Ages, you're looking at the, the rise of the kite shield as being in vogue, uh, which is longer, it's a little bit narrower, and it would essentially sit if you were a mounted soldier, your arm would actually go all the way through the straps. So it would be strapped to your arm, yeah. not to your hand. And then that would leave your left hand free to use the reins while still protecting you with your shield on this side. Um, so you would be left hand on the reins, shield right here. And that way, if somebody tried to strike at you from your, your weak side, they're, they're probably not going to hit you. They're going to hit your shield. Still might hurt, because you got to remember... All of this is hand-to-hand, like the the primary method of killing someone was blunt force trauma. Um, So even if you were wearing chainmail and somebody if somebody hit you in the side with an with an axe, even if it didn't penetrate, it still could break some ribs. Um, So the the primary thing you're doing here is you're trying to blunt force your way through, uh, which is why axes and clubs remained popular for so long, um, is because they would just crush through armor and shields and then uh if you look at the high middle ages the shields actually get dropped and ditched now this is not it really gets down to a point of what was the most effective method of combat so for for example with the the english army their strategy was to use the range of their longbows to just make sure that they could pepper the enemy before they got close yeah. And then they wanted to unhorse whoever they were fighting against, so they would use their their pikemen. Now, this the, the English army was one of the more versatile ones because they had to deal with fighting the Welsh, Scots, and Irish, who fought in a very different manner from the French. Yeah. So when the English were fighting the Scots, Irish, and Welsh, they would often use more French battle tactics: heavy horsemen, um, lots of lots of archery. And then when they were facing the French, they would use more Scottish battle tactics: pikes and skirmishers. And, and that was kind of how it went. Uh, the main, obviously, the main vehicle of medieval combat outside of England was the mounted knight. Uh, this was Spain, France, Germany, not Scandinavia, uh, but Spain, France, Germany, and Italy. Uh, you're looking at mounted knights, and they would, you would use that masked mounted charge. And that was what would succeed most often uh, was whoever had the, the better knights. But um, in the later Middle Ages, that's when it kind of got into oh, well, you can stop a lot of knights with a lot of pikemen. Um, and people starting to realize cheaper might be better for warfare. But yeah, so uh, if back back to like, no, we're, we're in the mindset of, you know, being a man at arms. So you got your, probably your leather or steel helmet, probably got some rings hanging down here. It's, it's heavy, but you're used to that. Uh, you, you march with all this gear on your back as it is. You're going to go into a battle line. So uh, you've got... 
everybody to your sides. Uh, if you're early medieval period, shield wall. If you are high middle ages, you're looking at probably still a battle line, but not the same type of overlapped shields kind of thing, yeah. because that's you're going to be following the knights in for the charge. And once once those lines clash, you're going to be following in your knights and your shock infantry to start dealing the dealing the blows. And then in the late mid Middle Ages, you're getting more of the pike warfare. So you're going to be lining up next to everybody. Probably the, the front rank might have shields, but it's just going to be them. And then after that, everybody's going to have their pike and probably a sidearm, an axe, sword. You know, you're getting the, the period of professional armies. So everybody's been more uniformly equipped. And that's that's the point which, like, from, from a psychological standpoint, what these people were looking at was the very real possibility that they might die. If you talk to a lot of uh, modern soldiers, a lot of the combat they go into is very lopsided in terms of uh, equipment, in terms of skill, in terms of numbers. So the American and British military, most of the time that they get into engagements nowadays, they have the overwhelming advantage. It's very unlikely that they're going to die in combat. Um, obviously, people still die, but it's not nearly the the very real possibility that you will, you know, you're, you're looking across the field at an army that is as equipped as yours most of the time. And it's going to be not a matter of your individual skill, but the tactical acumen of your general um, that is yeah. that is driving the success of your battle that day. And the earlier you go in the Middle Ages, the less that becomes true. The earlier you go, the more it becomes about individual heroics. And interestingly, the, the earlier you go, the more it becomes about individual heroics, the less casualties armies take. So medieval battles that occurred, you know, between 500 and 1,000, you'd be looking at, you know, in a large battle, a couple thousand soldiers on each, each side. For an army to be 10,000 men was absurd. That was a ridiculous number of soldiers in the early Middle Ages during like the, the, the Viking Age. When you hear stories about armies of like 25,000 men marching to war, that's a lot of soldiers. Uh, consider that, for example, in the poem uh, Igadothan by Anirin, um, which tells the story of a battle between um, the, the Celts, the, the Brythonic Celts of, of Strathclyde and yeah. uh, Altaclut and the, the northern kingdoms of the Cymru against the Anglo-Saxons, they're talking about 600 warriors yeah. going off to face the Saxons. And they're saying they're outnumbered, but 600 men is a lot of men. And these are all very talented champions that are going to war. This That's a large army for the year 680. Yeah. Is, you know, uh, sorry, 300 men. It's 300 men. Um, it's 680. Uh, and they, they all die. Uh, that's that's the gist of the story is everyone died but Aniran and Aniran was supposedly the brother of Gildas who was the guy who wrote uh, The Ruin of Britain uh, one of these you know great historians uh, and then you go back further you got Bede and you know a little bit forward in time you got Nennius some of these great Celtic historians but so you, you go from you know 300 men being a large force yeah. and 300 casualties being devastating to an entire culture yeah to in the late middle ages you're still not seeing you know the the mass casualties of like the 30 years war but you're seeing you know hundreds of people dead thousands wounded uh yeah. could happen um 
you're, you're not going to see, you know, like for there, there are battles from the 30 years war where you had thousands of men on both sides die. Uh, that, that doesn't happen at all during the middle ages. And that's one of those things that gets caught up in uh, a lot of fantasy. And, you know, Peter Jackson, uh, is, is guilty of it with his Lord of the Rings adaptation. Uh, and that is not to say that Tolkien does not give him the material for it, but Peter Jackson's version of things is you've got, you know, this massive army of cavalry charging into tens of thousands of orcs and just totally running straight through, uh, (laughs) And when you're talking about when you're thinking about like orcs who aren't who are kind of, they're not mindless but they're a lot less you know um, self determining than yeah. for example the the Rohirrim are in Lord of the Rings but uh, you know Peter Jackson has them turn around and obviously the the way this goes in the books versus the way this goes in the movies is different but in the movies which I'm sure everybody's seen they turn around and there's the the Oliphants there's the Mumakil yeah. behind them and you see just hundreds of these horsemen charge in and just get torn apart by the Mumakil. That would not happen in a medieval battle, Uh, especially to a warrior culture like that of the Rohirrim. You're going to have, you know, if you have an army of 3,000 men and you in the space of five minutes lose 300, you're you're turning and leaving. You're saying, bye, this is over. Day's done. (laughs) We lost, like... (laughs) There, there are examples of battles where one side that was hundreds of men strong lost three men and considered it a catastrophic failure. Uh, your, your average casualty count in terms of deaths and, and wounded would be like eight to 15 men in your average medieval skirmish. Your average numbers on both sides would be maybe in the few hundreds. And then as you get into the, the later period and the larger battles of like the third or the, the hundred years war, um, you're then looking at, you know, 15, 20,000 men on each side. So that's like the, the grand scale that you see in a lot of uh, fantasy and historical fiction is just that it's, it's fantasy, but that's what, that's part of what makes fantasy fun is you take this, this period of history and you're like, okay, what if we just grew the numbers by, you know, a thousand percent and added dragons and, um, you know, a wizard. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it makes it very, it, it's a fun way to think about things. And, uh, and of course the, the primary difference, I, I like the, it's put this way by Orson Scott Card. Uh, the primary difference between fantasy and sci-fi is trees. <laughs> fantasy has trees. Sci-fi has metal. He says that's, that's the biggest difference between the two. And I, I'm inclined to agree with him. Regardless of your, your political affiliations, you should go and watch uh, Ben Shapiro's Sunday special with uh, Orson Scott Card. It's almost entirely apolitical. He just he pretty much just talks about um, liter- like fantasy and sci-fi literature the entire time. It's a fascinating yeah. little thing. And this is the guy, you know, very prolific f- fantasy and science fiction author, Orson Scott Card, Ender's Game, and all of those yeah. books are, are him. They're phenomenal. Anybody who hasn't read them absolutely should. Uh, it's, it's a master class in, in uh, fantasy writing. Um, I think he's, with, without a doubt, a better author than uh, like George R. R. Martin in terms of, uh, you know, competing for that that title of best contemporary fantasy author, author I yeah. think Orson Scott Card is far and away better than George R. R. Martin is. I like George R. R. Martin's work, I do, but I think it's it just it pales in comparison um to like the the Ender's Shadow series and you know, the the political drama that goes on there. Yeah. Anyway, what I'm trying to get at here is uh, what the the casualty numbers are much lower. So the chance like if you watch uh, Braveheart for example, 
you'll see like both sides will just lose hundreds and hundreds of men and Mel Gibson alone is killing, you know, 15 Englishmen. And yeah. That just wouldn't happen. That wouldn't, that you would never have that kind of thing where you do see it. For example, is some of like Nennius's accounts of uh, King Arthur's battles where he's like, Oh, archers slew 900 men by his own hand at the battle of Mons Baden. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Max numbers on both sides in a battle that occurred in like 512 AD, few hundred, few hundred on each side. Um, the number of mercenaries that even came to Britain from Saxony was probably in the low thousands, if not if in the high hundreds. The average size of an early medieval army was a few hundred men. Uh, it was still very much uh, the going based on the the comitatensis the comitatis structure of having uh you know a a captain and then that captain is leading you know 15 to 50 men who trust him and that's he's their leader uh which eventually gives way to the feudal system but the the comitatis structure of a leader and his band of followers is prevalent in Germanic and Celtic history from you know, beyond what we actually have any written record of. Yeah. But that's kind of a, a that's you see a good mix of that in in fantasy where you have, uh, you know, your heroic character and then their band of loyal followers. But then also you get these giant set piece battles with a more feudal structure of generals and lords who command different segments of the army and whatnot. So uh, that would be the other, probably the last thing that I would say is really important to put yourself in the mindset of is as a medieval man at arms, your allegiance is not to the to king and country. Yeah. That's a much later idea. Your allegiance is to your direct uh, feudal lord. So if you are the, you know, one of five men at arms brought by a minor unlanded knight, yeah. you know, you're, you're a knight squire. Your allegiance is to that knight. Yeah. So if that knight changes sides, you're expected to change sides, <laughs> which obviously very inconvenient, but that's the way the feudal system works is yeah. if your leader changes sides or he decides to withdraw from the battle, you follow him. And it works the same for him. If you're a, if you're a very prestigious knight and you're known for your, your, your loyalty and your strength and all of that and your feudal lord decides to go to the other side. If you don't do that, you risk losing everything, even if you stay on the right side of that. Yeah. Even if you stay with your your side's king and your lord defects, you might still lose everything because the king is going to take all of that lord's land away and give it to another lord yeah. who might not take you on. Um, so there's, you got to remember that, that structure exists as well, which is, you know, adds to the, adds to the drama. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, th that is one of the other things is, you know, if you, to go back to the Lord of the Rings, you have this whole Aragorn being the rightful king of Gondor. Sure. But say, say that you, say that you were to take Lord of the Rings and put it in a realistic context, which I would never suggest doing. Um, mm -hmm. cause that's when you get comments like what was Aragorn's tax policy? Thanks, George which just, it's not the point of the story. Yeah. Uh, but if Aragorn, say, say that we get past the Battle of the Black Gate and the ring is destroyed and Aragorn assumes the kingship of Gondor. Well, but what, what about the Lord of Anthalus who has decided that, you know, he's loyal to the steward. He's loyal to, to the, the house of Exelion and not the house of Isildur. 
Well, he might decide to raise his banner in rebellion and try and uh, restore Faramir as the rightful steward of Gondor, or he might decide to secede entirely and form his own kingdom. You know, that's that's something that like would happen <laughs> in medieval society. Uh, you know, if if your country's royalty, if your country's monarchy changed families, th- there was a one hundred percent chance someone was going to rebel. Yeah. There, there is not like a single peaceful transition of power between two noble houses, between a father and son, sure. Between two noble houses, not a single time in European medieval history did that go well. <laughs> yeah. um, somebody always had, had, a, had a bone to pick. Somebody always had a problem with it. And they made a point of telling you about it. Always fight, yeah, always war. Exactly. Uh, and you know, and that is a very European thing. That's that's the other thing, is that's that is as old as Europe itself. Um yeah. so there's you know and you do see it in other countries, but that specific, you know, the the feudal system and all of that, that's very European. That is very much a, a medieval and uh and ancient European structural thing that is just this one of these quirks of a region's history. You know, Africa has its own its own quirks, and uh, as do the Middle East and Asia and North America and South America. That's one of Europe's is just this very, very intricate and legalized form of warfare <laughs> that they all follow. Like society, just a, a people. Often you look at history and you're like, how how is it that Europeans managed to do what they did in terms of the the colonial empires and whatnot. It is because Europeans for 2,000 years have been living their lives are based around war. <laughs> yeah. It, it, with society itself in Europe since arguably the, the Punic Wars, probably I would say, society yeah. in Europe has had the primary function of being protection from other societies. Yeah. The the primary binding factor of any any nat any nation any country was I need to be with these people because if I don't stick with these people those people are going to kill me <laughs> and that is what that's how Europe developed for two thousand three thousand years say what you will about how it went but it's okay. as a result as a result the world is the way it is um, yeah. you know yeah it's yeah. But it's incredibly interesting to, to study, and uh, I think it makes for some fascinating history and some, uh, you know, obviously some of what I think is the best literature ever written is in the the historical fiction and fantasy genres that are based upon this tradition of uh, telling the tales of heroic warriors and making those the people that we look up to. You know, our, our King Arthurs, our Robin Hoods, our, uh, our Aragorns, you know, yeah. the, those characters who are who are based around this this model of the the european folk hero i hope you've learned something new there everybody and aiden thank you so much for taking the time to share that wisdom with us of course um if anyone wants to find out more um where can we find you find me at the war lodge on youtube uh as well as the aiden mattis on pretty much everything else and i am both on instagram actually Uh, (laughs) i've got both those pages yeah follow everything because your life's going to be better for it Thanks very much. Thank you. And we'll welcome you back soon. Thank you for having me. A big, big thank you to Aidan. The man is a walk in history book, I swear. 
I hope you've learned something new. I learn something new every time I chat to Aidan. So I really do love having him on. And I hope you do too. And I hope it's given you some ideas for your own stories that you can use and hopefully go on and, and write a, a bestseller. Aidan will be back to share his wisdom on a few very interesting topics to do with medieval period. And that is going to come in the next few episodes. So be sure to subscribe and follow us and even join our mailing list as well. You won't miss an episode that way. I've got a few calls for submissions to share with you now. I'm going through this process myself at the moment with a short story. So I feel your despair at the long delays between acknowledgements or getting a response. It's it's pretty tedious, but uh, there are a few publishers that have popped onto my radar in my search. And as always, I think you should check every publisher out before you submit, just to make sure that they're the best fit possible for your story. So I've got five to share with you now. And first up is Welkin Magazine, which is a magazine of the fantastic and it's looking for submissions for the Book of Idle Tales, which is a book of 1,500 words, uh, flash fiction stories. So head over to welkinmag.com to find out more about that one. US magazine Dark Elements is looking for horror, mystery, dark fantasy, dark science fiction, and thrillers. And not just short stories for this one, but poetry, flash fiction, and novel excerpts too. I'm sure they're also looking for artwork. So if you dabble in that as well, just head over to darkelements.us to find out more. And sticking with the dark theme, the Dark Magazine is looking for horror and dark fantasy stories between 2,000 and 6,000 words long. And they also pay six cents a word for this one. So it's a, it's a real excellent paying market. Go to thedarkmagazine.com to learn more. Dragon Soul Press has got a mountain of anthologies that they're looking for submissions for. I think they're publishing one every month next year. And the next one that they're currently looking for closes on the 31st of December. It's called Rogue Tales, and they're seeking sexy fairy tales. That's their description, not mine. And they're looking for stories between 5,000 and 20,000 words long. So head over to dragonsoulpress.com to find out more. And lastly, Pride Book Cafe is looking for submissions for an upcoming anthology called From the Ashes, an anthology of elemental urban fantasy. And this anthology is helping raise money for burn survivors. So it's for absolute fantastic cause. And they also pay eight cents a word up to the first 1,000 words. And then after that, it's one cent up to 39,999 words. So if you've got a novel excerpt that you'd like to get published, this is a good place for that. Just head to Pride Book Cafe to learn more. So good luck with the submissions. And if you do find success, please share the good news with us at the Fantasy Writers Toolshed at gmail.com. And why not join our writing communities as well? We're very active on Discord and Facebook. And we always share different calls for submissions and people help each other get the, short, uh, the stories polished for submissions too. So it's a great place to collaborate like that. Just follow the link in the description to learn more. Now, before I move on to book cover tool news, I've got a few community shout outs to share with you. 
First, I just wanted to say a huge, huge congratulations to Misha Herwin, who's co-wrote a book with Maddie Harrisus to raise funds for Blood Cancer UK in memory of Posey Miller, Misha's daughter and Maddie's niece. This is a fair, absolutely fantastic cause and the aim is to sell 500 copies of The Awesome Adventures of Poppy and Amelia before Christmas. So please head on over to Amazon. I've got my copy and share it with anyone you think may be interested too. Congratulations to Joan Ramirez on the release of her book, The Right Rules, which is available on Amazon.com. This is a handbook for English as a second language and particularly targeted at financial, medical and technical professionals. Well done to David Donaghy on the publication of his short story, The Changeling, which you can find in Improbable Press's Dark Chair, Cryptids Emerging Anthology, which sounds very interesting indeed. I'll be checking that one out. Congrats to Joe Lewis on the upcoming release of his crime thriller, Blaze In, Blaze Out. It's had some fantastic reviews, so keep an eye out for that one and check out Black Rose Writing for more. Congratulations to BK Bass on the release of his post-apocalyptic novel, What Once Was Home, available on Amazon. Uh, it looks very cool indeed, and I've, uh, I've added this to my to-be-read pile. Well done to Josephine Winter on the release of book three in the K1174 series, which is also available on Amazon. And this is looks like BK's book, a very intriguing one. Congratulations to John B. Rosenman on the release of his new book, Starfighter Chronicles. This is described as 800 pages of nonstop sci-fi adventure, and it's had some really excellent reviews, which you can check out on Amazon. Congratulations to Craig Deegan on the release of the second book in the Cracklock series, The Lost and the Departed. Find out all about it on thecracklocksaga.com. A shout out to Liverpool author Paul McDermott, who will be down at the Christmas market at the Liverpool Irish Centre on Sunday the 19th of December, selling copies of his various books. And I'm going to be there too, selling a few of my own books. So if you're in Liverpool or the area and you'd like to... Come down and say hello, get a few copies, sign copies of books and whatnot. I'll probably be down there from about one till three or four. Congratulations to Peter Thompson on the release of The Forked Path, which is the third tale of the Wild series. And you can check that one out on Amazon. Big congratulations to Anne Peters on her new book, The Dragon Who Would Be King, a young adult fantasy adventure, which you can get through Amazon. Congrats to S. Tillman Hawthorne on the release of a very interesting collection of novelettes, short stories, flash fiction, and poems. It's called Imagination, Come Dream With Me, and it's available on Amazon. Congratulations to Laverne Spencer McCarthy on her successes for 2021 with an incredible two books published, nine short stories, and 48 poems. That's fantastic. Really well done. Big well done to Catherine Gallant on securing a spot on the Writer to Write or Mentorship Programme provided by the Association of Writers and Writing Programmes. It sounds very interesting indeed. Please let it know how it goes. And lastly, congrats to Alex Greenwood, who's received a fantastic review of his new book, Pilot's Faith, from Kirkus Reviews, which is one of the biggest book reviewers uh, on the internet. So really well done. Congratulations again to everybody there. And if you have any news that you'd like to share, um, we've got the next episode coming up and the next newsletter going out on the same day, which is on the 28th of December. Just email the details to the fantasywriterstoolshed at gmail.com. Now, if you've been on social media of late, you may have seen some eye-catching book covers being shared. And this is all because a new app for iPhone and Android, 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 
has uh, come out called Wombo Dream, and it utilizes artificial intelligence to quickly generate book covers or pieces of artwork simply by using keyword tags and different styles that you can choose from. And there's a, a range of different artistic styles. So you've got dark fantasy, general fantasy, pastel, mystical, synth, uh, steampunk is another one, I think. You literally just enter the keyword. So I've been using one for my upcoming book on world building. So I've been looking for map. And in just a few seconds, you can get a free, really, really eye-catching. It's, it's impressive, the quality, especially with it being free. So I've, I've been playing around with it. Some A lot of people on social media and in our writing group have been playing around with it too. I sometimes think that the designs can be a bit abstract. And if you try to get clear images of different things, then you, you might be a bit disappointed. But there is a way of doing it because I have seen some pretty amazing examples. So the trick is just to keep experiment with keywords, use broad keywords, use really specific keywords and play around with the different styles. Given the quality of it and the fact it's free, I think you'll be pretty blown away. Uh, I mean, book covers can cost starting 50, 60 pounds for a pretty basic one. So if you're looking for something to use for like a book funnel, the cover for a book funnel, for example, for a short story, this is something really worth looking at. I mean, you don't get a finished copy. You've got to take that image and then add a book title and um, author name. If you wanted to make it into a paperback, you'd have to do a spine and a back uh, cover as well. So use things like Photoshop or Canva to, to help you with that, I'd, I'd say. So yeah, check it out and please share some of your own examples. Email them in. Uh, the email address is in the description or you can join our group and share them in there too now if you enjoy a fantasy story then i'm sure you're also prone to a, a folk tale too these weird and wonderful stories are in fact inherently associated with the fantasy genre so much um, that fantasy essentially spawned from it and not only do folk tales inspire fantasy novels and fantasy stories they can also give us ideas for things that we can include as part of our world building. And these, these little details, these little stories, I find really do help make our worlds feel alive. These are the things that readers seem to love more than anything else if you go by book reviews. So I wanted to invite the fantastic Lucy Atkinson and Yanina Arndt back from the Faith Fellows podcast for an in-depth look at all things folklore. Hello and welcome to another dose of folklore and mythology. And I'm again delighted to be joined by Yanina Arndt and Lucy Atkinson from the Faith Fellows podcast. Please go and check out their show if you're into ghost stories, myths and fairy folk. It's the, it's the best place to, to get a hearty dose of that. Yanina and Lucy, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. We're, we're excited to be here. <laughs> oh, nice one. And today we're going to talk about folklore, just more generally. Uh, we touched about a bit about it in a previous episode. But I just want to get into what folklore actually is and how you sort of use it as inspiration for our fantasy stories and how we create our own as well, if we're going down that route for our novels or short stories. Um, so... Who wants to, to kick it off? Then what is folklore exactly? It looks, it looks like you know what's me to do that. So <laughs> I'll try my best. I think that in basic terms, folklore is, is myth and stories that are passed down orally through a community. So what characterizes it, I think, is, is the fact that it's passed down by word of mouth. Yeah. Mm. And I suppose if that's the way that information's being 
uh, sort of communicated, these stories are going to change over time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's very much when you find different like collections of tales, you can you can very much tell what era they were collected in. And some of them have variants where uh, suddenly like cottages and townhouses and society play a role, whereas like other more original things have to do more with nature and, um, you know, kings and queens in general. So they become more specific, I think, as, as time goes on. Yeah. So to get into some examples, then what are your some of your favorite folk stories? I mean, favorite is hard because I love all folk stories. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I love them all. I think the one that's closest to me, both in actual distance and and in kind of time, I guess, because I I heard it probably first, uh, is the Pickle Parson of of Setchfield in the northeast, which is essentially a kind of horrific ghost story. Yeah. <laughs> that revolves around um, a parson and his wife who, who live in Setchfield. And he's a very well-liked guy. Everyone loves him. Everyone's really happy to see him. Um, but he unfortunately dies a couple of days before the townspeople are due to pay him their tithes. So to collect, to continue to collect that money, his wife is like, okay, okay, we need, I need this money. I'm just going to sit him and prop him up at the window. Yeah. And and get him to to and make him look like he's you know alive, yeah. um, and then I'll go downstairs and I'll collect the money myself and I'll just tell people the parson's ill. And she does that once, um, and then in some variations of the tale, she does that and she gets so she's like, oh well, this is a great system. We'll just keep doing this. So she she pickles <laughs> his body and continues to do that until she gets found out. And the kind of the thought of it is that he still walks around the parish because he's so angry as a man of God and a good man that his wife tricked all these people of the town. Yeah, because he could go into pickle body <laughs> for so long. Is any idea how long she kept the going for? I think um, I think it was only like two or three collections of the, of the rent. <laughs> two or three months. Yeah, imagine the smell. Yeah. You know, imagine just looking up at the window as well and just his arm falls off or something. <laughs> yeah what about you Yanina have you got any favourite folk tales so I'm very much into the dragons now um, so up in the northeast there are a lot of dragons um, very you know again more of the Germanic variety worms um, we've got the lambton worm we've got the sockburn worm um, then we've got one in Whitby so yeah it's it's very much a worm land up here which is why, what I called my novel that I'm currently writing. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, you know, the lantern worm is, is so popular. And every time I, that I tell someone, oh, you know, the lantern worm's in my book, they go, oh my God, the lantern worm. And I, I just didn't expect that to be so popular still, um, yeah. which is probably, you know, would you agree, Lucy? That's probably also due to the song. Yeah, um, oh, it's 100% due to the song. <laughs> we love that song up here. Are you going to sing the song? Oh God! <laughs> it's in like old school Geordie. <laughs> yeah. Can you give us a line? Wish lad, hold your gobs. That's the... <laughs> I'll tell you all an apple starring. That's the one. So, what is the tale of the the lantern worm? So, uh, the lantern worm is um, coiled around either Worm Hill by Fatfield or Penshaw Hill, uh, which is where the Penshaw Monument is. 
Um, and in the in the song, it's Pentrill Hill. Um, but I I think people figured out from the from the law that it might have been more likely Wormhill. Anyway, um, they're very they're very you know you can sort of see one hill from from the other hill. It's not a it's yeah. not a big distance. And um, so there's Sir John Lambton, uh, who's our hero in this tale, and he is um, he's well he does a few blasphemous things on a on a Sunday, like going fishing, and then he accidentally fishes out a worm. A, creature of the devil and throws it into a well and there the worm grows and grows um and then spreads terror through the land by eating all the cattle and such like and lambton goes back and uh, uh well he he goes on to crusades and then he comes back and then he feels like i have to clean up this mess this is my fault um so he tries to he tries to slay the lambton worm there we've got another um, another witch uh, involved, well, <laughs> witch or wise woman, you know, different names and different stories, who tells him that um, he should put on armor with like spearheads on it, uh, so that the worm can wrap itself around him and thereby sort of slice itself up. Yeah. And uh, that is how he um, how he defeats the worm. Interestingly. The stories like this, you know, having a Sir John Lambton defeat the worm, very much were propaganda for the local gentry, the local, um, <laughs> so, you know, the local nobility to say, we dis- we, we are descendants of a dragon slayer. Yeah. You know, be respectful to us. Um, and so I think that's, you know, I think it's fascinating. It's also a bit terrifying, but a lot of the folklore that is around, you know, it has also got some kind of, a message behind it like that, um, especially, you know, in, in medieval tales. And that's where also like coats of arms come from and such like. So, yeah, a very, very interesting story up here. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a good point that you make as well. A lot, a lot of folk tales come about from either someone trying to make you do or believe one thing or playing upon your fears to to get mm. you to avoid doing other things so we always remember like stories of, of like don't go in the forest at night because such and such is, exists yeah so, like is this how the sort of folk tales were used throughout history really to dissuade children from straying too far from the home or yeah. some of them certainly yeah um others you know to propagate nobility um you know i think a lot of them have the purpose of keeping world order you know just keeping the system in place as it is and through that like and that's also what changes the folk tales because you know um that's how suddenly uh, dragons you know enter the bible as the sort of evil creature um suddenly you've got you know you've got the snake in the garden of eden and then you know suddenly they're all not just you know a mighty foe or something or some monstrous creature but suddenly they're the devil you know so it's it's very very interesting how they are utilized and then you know still keep coming up though in in all the stories yeah i think what's interesting as well is how folk tales so i suppose that sort of works like the media now like newspapers because back then we didn't have like newspapers did these obviously (laughs) so a lot of it was word of mouth stories and I always think like the witch trials. I know Lucy, you 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 love 
um, history of witches. So how is folks, well, how were folk tales used to sort of stir people up against witches and, and to sort of push this agenda of, of, of attacking women, essentially? Yeah, I, folk tales come up surprisingly often in the, in the witch trials, which I think I wasn't expecting. I thought these would be two kind of separate interests. But um, particularly, there's a, there's a massive slew of witch trials in Scotland um, that they call the Panics. Um, and, and there, because Scotland at that time is such a place of folk belief, and the folk belief doesn't necessarily align with what the kings and queens of, of Scotland want, it, it becomes this kind of systematic stamping out of folk belief, particularly fairy belief. There's one great tale of a woman, I believe, called Isabel Watson, or some variation of that. Uh, and she, she, she gets accused of witchcraft and she admits to doing something. She admits to what she's accused of, but she says she's not a witch. She, she gets accused of infanticide, of harming her children. Um, and she says, yeah, I, I did do that. I did do that. I left my children, my I left one child out in the woods and I burnt another one on the fire. But I did it because I met with the fake king and he told me to do it. So it's nothing to do with the devil and being a witch. It's to do with what the fae want from me. That's what the fairies want. And so that's that kind of like folk belief coming in. Of course, she still gets, she still gets uh, hung for witchcraft. But, you know, it's an entirely different confession than the one they wanted from her. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it just goes to show like how things can be manipulated, and we like to think that I don't know. We've got all this information accessible to us nowadays, but I think it still is easy to to manipulate mass populations. And back then, it was just easier to do it to stir people up, to play upon the fears, divide. It's just like saying now is it dividing and dividing populations and turning them against each other. And if it's like playing on the fears of, of witchcraft, for example, it's just a, a way of doing so, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so how, how do you see folklore portrayed in the fantasy genre then when it comes to the writing side of things? I, I would challenge a person to find any culture anywhere in the world where folklore hasn't played an important part on the history of that culture. Everyone has folk stories, everyone, everywhere. And so when you're creating a fantasy world, that's something that, you have to pay in mind. You don't just have to be like, okay, what do these people eat? What do these people do? What do they wear? You also have to be like, what do these people believe? Yeah. And whether yeah. it's true or not. I yeah. think that helps, that helps you really get into, if you're developing characters uh, and trying to make a world immersive, just showing that the each, even secondary characters have their own lives, that they can, that you can see this, this, their fears, their... What what motivates them to do things? That just makes it such an immersive story and a, and a, a more lifelike world. Yeah, absolutely. And also, it's you know, it's so nice for people to recognise characters that you know are modelled on characters that they grew up with. Like you know, if you've, if you've got retelling or adaptations of you know Grimm's fairy tales, like that's a it's a popular thing to do because people will then recognise them and and relate to them in a in a different way and and see that they're still relevant yeah have you got any favorite books or have you used it in, in any of your own writing any sort of the sort of folklore that you've come across have you tried to uh implement that yourself or you've seen any good examples of it yeah i'm i'm currently writing uh a novel as i said wormland um which is 
very much centered around a lot of northeastern folklore that we've we've got going up here. So the lantern worm does appear in it very much uh, in person. <laughs> um, it's also this one is it's from the perspective of a dragon. So um, very you know a little bit of a different take. So as a, you know from the the folklore itself rather than humans coming in contact with it. Um, so the dragon's the hero and the human is the sidekick. Just don't tell the human. So yeah, we we've got we've got the sidekick is a a druid child who um, obviously then again has like a different um, belief system from the dragon who was um, very much trying to be a good dragon like uh, her grandmother Margaret taught her, um, as in being, you know, a little bit evil every day sort of thing. Um, yeah. But um, you know, and and um, what I sort of really enjoyed doing was like giving them a bit of a journey through, you know, through this part of the country and having them pass different creatures. Like you know, they meet fairies in Stanup, which is you know one of the one of the tales that's around here. The Stanup fairies um, who require like uh, three things to be found to let whoever they abducted go. Um, you know, or with a uh, with a riddle and all that. Um, there's there's the venerable bead who pops up, and there, there are folk tales about him as well, which is interesting. And uh, yeah, um, so I I really enjoyed putting in all these different creatures and and giving them their own voices and making them characters rather than just having them appear and seeing how you know, the human goes through it and solves the riddle of the fairies and then gets their daughter back. But, you know, very much coming into contact and seeing what the fairies want. So, yeah, I, I find that so interesting to, to explore the, the different sides of all the creatures. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And what about you, Lucy? Have you implemented any sort of folk tales in your stories? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm working in historical fiction at the minute, so not quite fantasy, but it, it has fantasy elements, definitely. Um, and because I'm, I'm working on a novel about the Newcastle witch trials, um, that folk belief is so important it, it, because it informs so much of that tension between the kind of popular religion and the pagan religion that still has a hold in Newcastle. There's a lot of, like, folk healing... And that kind of thing. How how certain wise women would have known different routes to cure different illnesses and different little, you know, there's lots of little spells that go on uh, and, and rituals in in old school witchcraft. So that's kind of where I'm using it. Amazing. I think uh, I came across a book. I think it might have won a few awards. Actually, it's called The Essex Serpents. Have you heard of that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you read it? I haven't. I know what happens in it, though. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's based on a folk tale, isn't it? In from Essex. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems to be quite popular now to to implement these or adapt these tales into our own stories because they are great stories. Like when you were explaining about the the lantern worm before, that I was hooked. <laughs> <laughs> so it just goes to show, doesn't it, that they are a man to be uh, to be tapped into for fantasy writers and. Yeah, it's been fascinating chatting more about it today. Uh, so thanks very much to, to Lucy and Janina for, for joining us again. And it's and we've got another installment, haven't we, yet to come, looking at Greek mythology, yes. which is my personal favourite of all the mythologies. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, so we'll look forward to that conversation. How can we find out a bit more about um, you two and the Free Fellows podcast? So we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr as at Faith Fellows Podcast and as Faith Fellows on Twitter. Feel free to message us, comment on things, and you know, uh, give us ideas for new episodes. If you'd like to hear about anything in particular, we're happy to incorporate that. Fantastic. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. A massive thank you to Lucy and Yanina for sharing their insights. We'll be welcoming them back next time for a chat about Greek mythology, which is one of my absolute favorites. So be sure to subscribe and follow and join our mailing list too, so you don't miss that episode. In that episode, which comes out on the 28th of December, we'll be looking at evolution and well-building too. Plus, I'll have some calls for submissions and some writing news and tips as well. So that's it now from us before Christmas. I wish you a truly wonderful festive season and I hope you get plenty of time off work to relax and enjoy time with friends and family and to do whatever you love to do most, which for me, plenty of writing, plenty of reading, plenty of spending time with the people I love. Don't forget, if you have any questions or comments or want a shout out in the next episode, just email thefantasywriterstoolshed at gmail.com and if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or follow and share the show with anyone you think may enjoy it. We've also got a bunch of awesome things on Patreon too, including fantasy writing classes, fantasy writing books, and you can also find out how to join our writing community there as well. So thank you for listening. Happy holidays and keep on scribbling.